1: Nai tenei, nā te reo irirangi o and we're
2: into extra time! Kia
0: ora and welcome to extra time. I'm Brenton Venisroy and this week I'm joined by former Blackfern Lewis Wall, sports commentator Hamish Bidwell and RNZ's rugby reporter Joe Porter. As we discuss moves towards a women's super rugby competition in 2021, the importance of the Silver Lake deal to make it a reality, and the concerns about overseas investment in New Zealand rugby. You'll also hear from the head of mainland football, Julian Bowden, after FIFA announced the host cities for the 2023 Women's World Cup to be staged here and in Australia. And I speak to rising Kiwi motorsport star Liam Lawson following his stunning start to the F2 season. But first, rugby. This week, the Blues and Chiefs announced they would play a one-off women's match next month with an eye to a full competition becoming a reality in 2022. Lewis, and how, how overdue is this for women's rugby in New Zealand?
1: Oh, look, it's been overdue for, for a few years, but to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty uh, stoked about the development. Uh, in fact, I was talking to ex-Black Firm colleague Cheryl Waka uh, last week she's one of the coaches for the blues uh, and we're going to grab this opportunity with both hands so congratulations both to the blues and the chiefs uh, for creating the opportunity for women within their franchises it's it's a wonderful opportunity for women's rugby
0: yeah and do you think a uh, women's competition in 2022 would be absolutely the ideal preparation for the black ferns heading into a home world Cup too
1: I, I do actually and I mean it's quite luxurious for us to be able to, uh, to create that competition and create the, the context for the development of our team to prefer, prepare for the, for the World Cup. So uh, in terms of I guess an aspiration for us not only as hosts but to be successful within that context then I see the women's uh, super competition as fundamental uh, to meeting that objective to be honest.
0: Hamish, you came off the long run when the uh, Women's Rugby World Cup was postponed a year. What are your feelings uh, about this initiative and, and hope for a competition in 2022?
3: It's an encouraging development, uh, but the timing intrigues me, obviously, um, as did Scott Robertson's announcement that his, uh, his retention at New Zealand Rugby you know, remains in the balance and all these sorts of things. It's about winning a PR battle, which New Zealand Rugby are attempting to do here around the Silver Lake deal. Um We'd love to have women's super rugby, but it's incumbent upon the Silver Lake deal. We'd love to retain Scott Robinson, but it's incumbent upon the super, uh, the Silver Lake deal. We've got people like John Kerwin and Sean Fitzpatrick speaking up on behalf of the deal and urging the players to take it, never mind that Sean Fitzpatrick uh, and all his teammates but a couple signed with a rebel competition in 1995. They came back into the tent, and he's certainly trying to be in the tent now. But it's a, it's a PR battle, and I admire New Zealand Rugby for getting on the front foot and trying to dictate the narrative a little. Obviously, the Rugby Players Association and their friends at the New Zealand Herald you know, um, are trying to spin a different line, and I think it's really good that NZR are on board. I, as I say, it's encouraging that there is talk of a super rugby competition for the women, and I think it's overdue, as Lewis has said, but yeah, the timing of the announcement of it, um, that certainly intrigues me.
0: Joe, you obviously talked to the head of New Zealand rugby, Mark Robinson, earlier in the week. Is it just PR spin or do you think the Silver Lake deal is needed for this women's rugby competition to be a reality?
2: I think it's probably a bit of both. He certainly used the opportunity to make it pretty clear that Super Rugby Wahine Tour or a women's Super Rugby competition in 2022 or even in the future relies on New Zealand rugby getting more funding from somewhere, a.k.a. the Silver Lake deal. So essentially that's what he said. He's drawn a line in the sand hoping to get that you know, sort of piece of PR over the line and get the women's game behind the Silver Lake deal because it obviously could present them with some opportunities to get paid finally. So yeah, the timing, like Hamish says, is pretty interesting, although in reality he's probably right. New Zealand rugby need money. They're losing money every year or most years. They had their cash reserves hit pretty hard by the COVID pandemic and they pay, pay their players or men's players that is far too much in this current market considering the resources they have. So they need to find money somewhere and if they're going to do something like create a women's super rugby competition they need to find a fair bit of money. So you'd think that the Silver Lake deal is possibly the best opportunity for that to happen.
0: And in case, of course, you've been living under a rock, Silver Lake, the US investment firm, wants to buy 15% of New Zealand rugby's commercial rights for up to $465 million. NZR's Chief Executive Mark Robinson has labelled the potential deal transformational, but what is the cost? Players have expressed concerns that the deal might lead to misappropriation or misuse of tikanga Māori and Pacifica culture. But that's, of course, part of the very fabric of the All Blacks. Louisa, what are your thoughts about this as a former Black Fern?
1: Oh, I think that uh, the reality of uh, modern sport and for organisations like New Zealand rugby is that they need $100 million from somewhere every year to function. Um, I think the rationale for going to Silver, Silver Lake, for me, makes sense. Uh, this is a particular entity from the U.S., who's invested in UFC uh, and also Manchester City. But USC particularly, I think we should look at, and it's all about live sport and how you package live sport and how you sell live sport. Uh, we really haven't looked at the international market around uh, the content that uh, New Zealand rugby produces. And if there is a 60 million worldwide audience that's interested in watching our sport, then I think we should take it. Um, when I've looked at, as I said before, uh, USC, they have a worldwide um, audience of over 1.2 billion. Um, the other factors for me, uh, I think the New Zealand Rugby Players Association has been really clear about their support for a six a team and obviously wanting to advance our Pacifica uh, whānau within that context. Um, so that needs to be on the table. And I think the other issues um, are having the resources to, to actually address other issues. For me, homophobia within rugby, uh, sexism within rugby. So I want to see the development not only of women being able to play, but also women coaches, women referees, uh, women administrators, Uh, and and obviously being a game for all. So addressing things like uh, racism uh, within our sport. So if this deal can provide us with the resources to do all that, then actually I'm 100% supportive of it.
0: So no concerns for you straight away about maybe cultural misappropriation?
1: No, I mean, I've seen Clara's comments and that uh, Māori rugby um, governors uh, are looking at the the property uh, right aspects and and also, I guess, how we we present rugby to the world. Um, It doesn't seem to me that's what Silver Lake is interested in. Theirs is about um, live sport and live entertainment and everything that's currently around brand rugby, brand all black brand black students, inherent within all of that is our our culture and our language, doing the haka, um, representing Aotearoa on an international stage. I can't see how this deal will change that. And what I'm saying is we should be leveraging off it. And if we can get a sixth team within the super competition uh, that supports Pacifica engagement, then I would have thought the... Players' association would be better focusing on that, given it's something they lost in the very uh, recent, um, you know, past.
0: What about you, Hamish? Do you, do you share any of these players' concerns?
3: No, I couldn't disagree with them more. I think um, they're bankrupting the governing body and um, resisting every attempt to generate revenue to pay their absurd wages. And we're rapidly at a point where we can have rugby, excuse me, or we can have All Blacks rugby, but we can't have both. So to fund All Blacks Rugby and the wages of the players, every other program under the New Zealand Rugby banner has to suffer or disappear or what have you. And and out in the community where the game needs to be thriving, it's dying. Um, it's all very well for these modern day players to argue their case and to want better wages and conditions and to say that, you know, we can't be in quarantine for Christmas because our children, you know, cry themselves to sleep. That's cool, like they did last year, but... They're bankrupting the game in the process, and they never seem to be satisfied with their lot. They always want a sabbatical. They always want rest weeks. They talk about cheapening the jersey far out. When 50-odd players a year are having to play for the All Blacks because these prima donnas don't like to back up, how cheap does the All Black jersey get at that point? So I absolutely support this deal. Not necessarily this deal in particular, but the idea that money has to come in is, is critical. There's no way around it. New Zealand rugby have to investigate alternative revenue streams to pay for not just the All Blacks but for the game itself then the game itself to me is a have to have the All Blacks as they behaving at the moment becoming a nice to have you know what i mean the game has to survive this period and at the moment if we just put all our resources into the all blacks if the all blacks themselves say we don't want this money from here we don't like it from there or we're not happy with this then there won't be a game beyond the all blacks and and that's hugely troubling to me i have to say
2: hamish how much of the 465 potential million dollars in the silver lake deal do you think will filter down to grassroots rugby or how much of it is just going to be used to keep the all blacks winning
3: Well, I think you probably could
2: answer your own question there. But that's, you know, the game needs money, but how much of it actually will go to grassroots?
3: Oh, I don't know. Go
1: on, Elsa. I was going to say, isn't that the point of what Rob and the Players Association are saying? They want to say about how this money is going to be distributed, and that's their concern. I think if the, the plan was... You know more uh, transparent and and they were clear about how they're going to use this investment to develop Pacifica rugby to develop women I mean yeah cynical ploy whatever, but the reality is uh, we haven't had those opportunities before, and so if this investment provides that opportunity, uh, then we need really clear i guess kPIs to make sure we're measuring um, how it's implemented but I think this is a transformational opportunity for rugby, and as long as that money filters through to our player base and we keep uh, our kids engaged, because that's one of the biggest challenges, actually. Our children are choosing to play basketball and a whole range of other sports.
0: Well, as I mentioned, Mark Robinson did speak to media during the week, and he said there are no plans, uh, there are rather plans in place to stop any cultural misappropriation from happening.
4: We believe we've given due care and consideration around all the potential risks, controls and enhancement around cultural consideration here. We're continuing to receive feedback as to how that might be reflected in any partnership, but it's certainly been something that we've been very, very conscious of right the way through. We've had full engagement with the Māori Rugby Board.
0: And the players have, of course, gone into mediation with New Zealand Rugby to try and resolve the dispute, with NZR needing the players' support to make the lucrative deal a reality. Joe, do you think it will be solved?
2: Yes, I do. I think it will be solved. I think Rob Nicol and the Players Association, you know, they're pretty good at being hardline negotiators, and he came out publicly leaking that letter to the Herald um, to give, you know, to put that perspective into the general news media. I'm sure that New Zealand Rugby would have rather those discussions be held behind closed doors, but it has put the debate into the public sphere which is probably a good thing because now we get an idea as to what the Players Association have concerns about and how they are going to be addressed by New Zealand rugby before it all just gets done. So I think um, ultimately the deal will get done. New Zealand rugby needs the money desperately. If the players want to continue to be paid as well as they are, they need the money. If they want to have the grassroots game, which Hamish has said is dying club le- at club level and at teenage level, at high school level, Men and boys are dropping out of the game in in big numbers. Uh, It's a slight pick-up on the women's side of things in terms of participation, but again, that's really only because there haven't been women's teams before. So, yeah, the game is dying at club level. The game is dying at high school level, apart from the big First 15 programs. There is big changes needed to reinvigorate the community game, and hopefully that money will do it, because without the money, they're simply not going to happen. Whether or not the money gets used for that, will remain, I guess that remains to be seen. But like Luisa says, hopefully there's some some policies and protocols or at least some ways to measure how that actually is happening in place. But yeah, ultimately I think the deal will get done and I really do think at this point in time it's posturing from both sides to make sure they get the best they possibly can out of it. But I think everyone at the end of the day would agree that without Silver Lake and without this investment deal, it doesn't have to be Silver Lake per se, without the big investment deal, New Zealand rugby is in real trouble.
0: I uh, take it, Luisa and... Hamish, you both echo those those sentiments?
1: Absolutely. And actually, I think Silver Lake is the best option for us because of the expertise. Um, Good and, point. Um, you know, the, especially in the technology space. I mean, the, the, the reality is if they can help uh, spread rugby around the world and we get more subscriptions, uh, then it's going to be better for us collectively because that will drive more content. I mean, I'm hoping the women end up uh, on these platforms, and people choose to watch uh, the woman play. Uh, that's my bias, but um, uh, this, if this provides that impetus and that opportunity, then yeah, as a past player, I'm, I support what New Zealand Rugby is trying to do. And we have to remember that the uh, class, four, uh, class four gaming monies um, have decreased so significantly that sport, all of sport has to look for alternatives. Uh, and we should be quite proud, to be honest, that this. Uh, organisation wants to um, align themselves with us. It's quite a strategic investment from Silver Lake
0: Well I know you uh, have other commitments Louisa so thank you very much for for joining us on on Extra Time and for you Hamish I'll leave you with the, the final word on this
3: I just want to know what people think of the players. Certainly, I'm not a huge player enthusiast. Mm. I find them difficult, and that's because of the proximity I've had to them professionally. I think when you see them on TV and you think they're just they're greater than great and they're wonderful people, I, I, I see a lot of selfishness here. I see a lot of short-termism. I, uh, I, I wonder if people find the guys, frankly, offensive or whether they just love their deeds on the park and and are happy to just accept those and and, and disregard this other stuff. I I have a hard time copying these blokes and their demands and their tantrums, to be fair, and I'd be curious to know what other people think.
0: Well, we'll see how that plays out over the next month or so. Of course, the players will have ultimately really the final say, along with the provinces. Over 50% of the provincial unions have to get in behind this Silver Lake deal for it to be a reality. We'll find all about this at the end of the month at the annual general meeting. Christchurch has missed out on hosting any matches during the 2023 Women's Football World Cup. World football's governing body FIFA has confirmed New Zealand's host cities are Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington and Dunedin. Mainland Football Chief Executive Julian Bowden has told RNZ Sports reporter Barry Guy that he's surprised Christchurch has been overlooked.
4: Listen, it is a bit of a shock, and, and obviously we're, we're disappointed. At the end of the day, FIFA's made decisions based on a whole... Bunch of their criteria, and right now I'm not exactly sure um, what criteria we didn't perform as well in as, as we needed to. So, um, listen, it will be it'll be tough on the football community here. It means we're obviously going to have to get on planes and trains and cars and go and watch games in other parts of the country. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it is it is disappointing indeed.
0: I understand that uh, to get your stadium up to. FIFA requirements was going to be quite costly. Do you think that played a part?
4: Um, it's hard to know. My understanding is that all, all of the all the facilities needed some form of investment, and, and I haven't seen any numbers to suggest ours was more than others. Um, so I, I guess we'll, what we'd like to get some, you know, we'd be looking at some more feedback around around perhaps why the city wasn't selected. But I guess FIFA will have its reasons and. Um, We'll just need to work around that. I mean, there's still an opportunity, hopefully, to get some perhaps some teams based here for their training and, and, and make Christchurch a home for them over the tournament. Um, so those will be the... I guess that might be where our focus goes to next.
0: So I am correct. Um, you have previously hosted games at FIFA Age Group tournaments, so you, you would have perhaps um, felt you were in a good position.
4: Well, I think the city and the organisations of the city did everything we possibly could to to bring games to the city, um, and, and for some reason, um, we haven't made made the last made the last cut. I guess. Um, so I guess the the Women's World Cup is a big event. It's a Tier One event for FIFA. So, um, you know, they're a big organisation. They run these competitions, and um, uh, unfortunately, we 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 haven't made the cut.
0: Yes, you touched on it earlier, but. What will this mean for the footballing community in your area? Uh, you know, especially, I suppose, uh, women, but all footballers and football fans.
4: I think everybody will be disappointed. I think that's a natural reaction to what to, to today's announcement. But I guess we'll regroup and we'll have to think of ways to engage with the tournament, um, both for our, our young, all of our young players, actually, both boys and girls. That you know, this is a huge event. That's still going to be on our shores. It may mean we've got to do some travelling or we, we need to think of innovative ways to, to get involved. Um, I think the coverage and exposure of the tournament will still be huge for the game. Um, and while there might be some disappointment there's not games here in the city, um, the fact that it's still on our
0: back doorstep, but we'll have to make the most of that. Mainland Football Chief Executive Julian Bowden speaking to RNZ sports reporter Barry Guy. New Zealand may not have to wait long before it has another driver in Formula One after Liam Lawson made a stunning start to his career in the feeder series F2. The 19-year-old won on his debut and then finished third in the feature race of the season opening round in Bahrain to sit second in the championship. I caught up with Lawson after a whirlwind week.
5: Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Literally from from the first day, um, after the first race, I didn't really pick up my phone until till Sunday night because it was just I, I didn't, I, I was just like, right I'm just going to have to go through all of this when I when we're done on Sunday because I, I, there was no way I could get through it all, it was it was really, really cool to see how many people were watching and, and the support that I have from, from back home especially um, but also around the rest of the world um, yeah, I mean I, I gained thousands of uh, followers over on Instagram over the weekend, um, I had over a thousand messages, probably from um, so many different people. So it was it was pretty cool.
0: A lot of Kiwis, as a result, are just starting to get to know you. I suppose, Liam, tell us a bit about yourself. How have you you got into motorsport? What age did you start in carts? And obviously, having lived over in Europe for a, a couple of years now, how has how has that been?
5: Um, yeah, well, from from day one, I started in, in go karting when I was seven years old, um, and you know, did the normal progression through the early years of karting until I was twelve actually and and um it wasn't so much uh you know, I, my dad and, and obviously I always wanted to be a four line driver and a race car driver so um I but uh, you know twelve year old doesn't know when the right time is to, to leave go-karts and what to do and things like that and it wasn't so much that we chose to leave, it was that we couldn't really afford to, to race at the top level in go-karts anymore so we had to find something else um, and there was a scholarship program for, for Formula First, um, where you could race a full season and uh, I was lucky enough to win that scholarship and, and race a season and from there um, things started to, to grow uh, I went and did Formula 4 the next year and then Formula 4 in, in Australia my first year overseas and then to Europe the year afterwards, um, my first European season and then the last couple of years have just gone crazy. Um, just the, the timing of everything and, and the support that I've had from home um has been unbelievable and something that I never ever thought would be possible like, like this, you know, something that you dream of and, and since I was a kid I wanted to be a um, you know, a Formula One driver but um even just talking to people about you know the chances of that happening as a kid people were telling me that's not possible and um as it sort of becomes more realistic um yeah it's it's crazy to think the the way things have gone in the last couple of years
0: is it still the dream now to be a formula one driver
5: yeah absolutely uh as, as i guess as we get closer um it becomes more uh i don't know how to explain it but um uh, no, as it becomes more realistic, it's it's yeah, it becomes more and more. Um, I want it even more, basically, um, which I didn't really think was possible. But um, no, it's absolutely still the dream. Um, but it's important not to to look too far ahead, and and because you know this year is still a, a massive year, and and um, it's still it is the way, even though you know it's Formula Two and it's it's technically one step. Um, you know, guys spend years in Formula Two because it is it's so hard, you know, very, very few seats every year are available and not every year Formula Two driver even goes to Formula One. So it's still um, you know, that's where you get guys that spend three, four, five and so on years in an F two um just trying to get that break. So it is hard from this this step, but um yeah, it's just important to focus on what we're doing and, and try do the best job we can and if we do that then um, we get to keep progressing upwards.
0: No doubt Liam a lot of those people saying you know getting into Formula One's so hard unrealistic is because you need money usually as well to to make that step up to, to Formula 1. Is it different though being part of the Red Bull Junior program having shown that a number of drivers have come through there to Formula 1?
5: Yeah definitely and it's the only reason I've you know carried on really. Um, it's another when I talk about the timing of things in the recent years that's one that came in at, at you know at the right time um it's it was it's obviously been amazing to have the support that i've had from new zealand but it is very hard to get uh enough money to um unless you're you know unless you come from a wealthy family or things like that which i don't um it is very very hard to get the support from people enough of it to to, to race at this level so red bull literally came in at the time where um formula three Without Red Bull, wouldn't be possible, really. Um, realistically, in the season that we did it, maybe now, but back then, it, you know, it wasn't. Um, so, and now F2 definitely wouldn't be possible without, um, without Red Bull. So they basically have, um, yeah, came in at the right time. Um, and now they just have to use this opportunity, basically, um, with, you know, the best they can.
0: Liam Lawson, his next F2 round is in Monaco next month. That brings us to the end of Extra Time. My thanks to former Blackfern Louisa Wall, sports commentator Hamish Bidwell, and RNZ rugby reporter Joe Porter. Extra Time is available every Friday from around 4pm. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, and of course at rnz.co.nz. Give us a rating if you would. That helps us a lot and means other listeners can find us much more easily.